Greetings, listeners and learners. You are now tuned in to The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, a podcast docu-series in which we traverse across time to explore the socio-historical, political, and professional experiences of educators of color. I'm your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English language art specialist for Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. In this episode, we will continue exploring the contributions, oppression, and resilience of Latinx, Asian, and Black educators during a period of American segregation and expansion. Throughout the episode, we'll be attending to two of Unbounded's five charges by talking about race systematically and examining bias and its role in our work and learning. I hope that the reflections in this episode and the discussion questions available at the end provide fuel for meaningful, necessary, and courageous conversations that you can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. If you are just tuning in, I encourage you to listen to the previous episodes which explore the experiences of educators of color before, during, and right after chattel slavery, leading into and through the Jim Crow era. Last episode, we explored the preservation and persecution of teaching and learning norms of Asian, Black, and Indigenous peoples from the early to mid-20th century, and explored the impact these norms have had on education today. America's ability to segregate and colonize through policies, practices, and habits of racialized minds strengthened as it entered the 20th century. Of course, this wasn't without forms of resistance from educators and communities of color. This resistance would take place through A, instruction that would affirm student identity, and B, political persistence. In the process, there was conflict, convergence, and creativity amongst different communities of color that would only intensify as the modern civil rights movement and United States expansion would grow into full swing. What will this era reveal about how we choose to do education in our systems and classrooms today? Indigenous, Black, Chinese, Japanese, and Mexican folks were dealing with educational oppression for decades, if not centuries. Through the first half of the 20th century, new ethnicities would now have to worry about American political, territorial, and education intervention, or interruption depending on your point of view. Due to the Spanish-American War and the Treaty of Paris in 1898, the United States now owned the island of Puerto Rico, a sanitized word for this in our history book is seeded or annexed, and had open opportunities to influence a now independent Cuba. These historic events would have a massive impact on how educators of those Caribbean and Latinx cultures were allowed to educate their children of their heritage from the early to mid 20th century. As previously done, the United States colonized the four L's, land, language, literature, and learning. Professor Victoria Maria McDonald, author of Latino Education in the United States, breaks this process down. I'm gonna start right now with uh, Puerto Rico which is a real classic example of a most draconian Americanization campaign that actually had some backlash. Um, but at the time that we acquired Puerto Rico, um, there was this very, again, this whole almost universal notion of colonization that had come throughout the world um, with colonies and uh the African nation and elsewhere that the United States decided to begin to participate in. And so with that, it was, again, this view of we need to replace that culture with American ideals and values. Puerto Rico had been owned by Spain for 400 years. And Spain, um, again, was on the downswing. And Roman Catholicism was viewed, again, by many of the Protestant white leaders as um, something that needed to be eradicated also. So you have this notion of complete, um, you know, language. So a lot of this is a lot about language. So the language was required in the schools in Puerto Rico to be only English and that the teachers would only speak English and write English. Um, in 1899, the first policies, and that was so unrealistic because many of the teachers didn't know English at all. Some might know some, but not enough to teach. So they literally had um, you know, people 
uh, gathered and, you know, donated, you know, uh, books of English. You know, everybody got a book, a Protestant Bible, and an American flag for these little schools. But it was really just symbolic because um, it was a disaster. So the next year, they had another person take over, and they revised that policy. And they started doing half-day in English, half in Spanish. What the long-term happened is the policies actually changed, I think I counted, over a dozen times in three decades of what percentage Spanish or English would be taught in the schools, or sometimes math would be taught in Spanish, but social studies in English. Deciding how much of a student's home language should be welcomed in the classroom. Sound familiar? I know that as a teacher, this was something I had to navigate every day. Often, I let students know that their home language was welcome aesthetically by asking them what words meant in their home languages, doing my best to pronounce their names with the appropriate tone and accent, and welcoming and discussing different cultural norms. But welcoming their language academically was a true struggle of mine. I was underexposed to the resources and organizations like WIDA, World Class Instructional Design and Assessment, and English Learner Success Forum, and truthfully I undervalued the resources that were the English for Speakers of Other Languages teachers that served the same students I did. Every decision I made in these situations was a step away from or towards marginalizing students' identities as intelligent beings. Those steps contributed to the legacy Professor McDonald illustrated. She goes on to explain how things become even more complicated when teachers and students from Puerto Rico began migrating to the mainland through the 40s and 50s, having to navigate the United States' distinct racial caste norms. One of the backlashes and extreme detriment to both the teachers um, being trained in the normal schools and then teacher education colleges um, really shows up when you have the migration to New York City in the 1940s and 1950s and to Chicago, because the result was you have children who come to the cities in the United States, and they're really not proficient, especially in their academic writing, in either Spanish or English, and they're put to the bottom of the barrel. Um, and, you know, they're put in lower classes, oh, 30% of all the children in New York City schools of Puerto Rican children were put in special education classes, not because they needed the services, but again, we didn't have many Puerto Rican teachers then. So the assumption was, oh, they're dumb. They're what they called at the time, you know, um, mentally challenged. Um, it was just about language, right? Um, so um, these very inept policies um, were real damage um, to Puerto Rican students. You also have colorism happening again. So Puerto Rico is an island. We'll talk about the Dominican Republic also. The large Afro-Latino population with various hues, right? People call them the Trigen, your Moreno, all kinds of levels um, of color. And so when the students, even from the beginning of the days of the United States first colonizing, Different organizations selected some students to go to college in the United States and get scholarships. But the darker looking Puerto Rican students who probably had Afro, you know, Latino heritage, they were sent to the HBCUs here, to Tuskegee, um, uh, to Hampton, and put with uh, African Americans. And also we know that there were Native Americans place there. So sort of this sort of view of, okay, everybody who's white skin white, some of them went, they were sent to Cornell, to Colgate, um, lighter skinned, uh, middle upper class Puerto Ricans. And then if you were darker, doesn't matter what your academic train was, you would go to the black colleges. Um, so you have these splits along race and color in the way you might be treated and your opportunities. And then when they came here to the United States, again, there were not Puerto Rican teachers, or very few. Um, however, what did happen was a lot of the Puerto Rican teachers, they had their certificates, and they spoke English and wrote English in Puerto Rico, but when they came to the United States, they were told that their certificates were not uh, valid, and they would have to actually go back all the way through college again which was not going to be possible for most of them. But they made them this permanent class called 
substitute auxiliary teachers. And they're hired, basically, at very low rates. Um, but they played a vital role in the late 40s and 50s as brokers who were bicultural, bilingual, to work with Puerto Rican children in the schools because they were the same heritage and could understand how frightening it was to come to these new schools. Skin color dictated the expectations and opportunities provided for Latinx students and aspiring teachers, despite being from the same ethnicity. Any colorism that would have existed before was significantly amplified upon migrating to the United States mainland. In addition to color and ethnicity, the home and academic language assets of these educators was seen as a deficit for professional instruction of students, but an asset for bridging the gap between the school and community. When I read the Education Trust Report, Our Stories, Our Struggles, Our Strengths, Perspectives and Reflections from Latino Teachers, I realize that this systemic and restrictive manipulation of a language asset, unfortunately, some 80 years later, is still a reality. Many Latinx teachers today report what Latinx substitute auxiliary teachers reported in the 40s and 50s, becoming empowered as translators, but not as leaders in the teaching and learning process. Meanwhile, this was a particularly painful time to be Japanese in America. While they were building meaningful, engaging, and language-affirming instruction in Japanese schools, while also strategically integrating California schools, the events of World War II reversed the political power they had in previous decades, forcing them to endure the terrors of United States internment camps. This would massively impact the Japanese education movement. Curricular historian Wayne Ao explains this transition. The Japanese American project, like they were, they were actually highly integrated in a lot of the California schools, um, and in some cases, even being the predominant populations in, in some of the California schools, um, to the point where actually the the white parents were upset um, about their white kids having to go to school with so many so many Japanese American folks, or or their the white students not getting much chance to play baseball because the Japanese American kids were all on the baseball team. Like you see a lot of that kind of dialogue, this discourse going on. Um, the main thing that happened for Japanese Americans though was, was actually, you know, World War II and Japanese American incarceration by the U.S. federal government, right? And so all the Japanese American communities, which were pretty well established by that time, were basically um, wiped out from, from, you know, the, the West Coast. Um, um, and, and that really disrupted every, everybody and everything. A lot of their land was taken. You know, the Japanese were pretty heavy farmers in California and, and here in Washington and other places, and their land was taken and the communities were disrupted entirely. So that sort of, in a way, was, was what ended that outcome. And then folks came back um, and then ended up sort of uh, integrating uh, sort of fully, as much as you can at least, into, into the U.S. public school system. The language schools became a target um, largely because of sort of like the ramp up to, to World War II um, and, and the international politics, like just this, and this really the rise of yellow peril politics um, uh, in, in the U.S., right? And so, you know, that's one of the things about Asian American positioning historically. It's sort of like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know we get, we, we're, we're sort of told, oh, we want you, right? You're, you're you, know, uh, you know, either nowadays, oh, you're the good one, right? Well, you're the model minority, we want you. And that, that holds true. Uh, and, and until they decide they don't want you, right? So they become a threat, right? And then, and then they want to get rid of you, right? And so, um, that was definitely the case back then too, you know, all these folks were brought in as labor, but then, you know, as soon as it became a threat to, um, uh, some, as soon as it was perceived as a threat, I don't even know if it was really a threat, but as soon as it was perceived as a threat, um, uh, these Asian American communities were attacked, um, you know, by, by white supremacists and, and pol mainstream politicians and workers and all sorts of stuff. Um, and so the Japanese language schools became seen as a threat um, to sort of the white Christian American thing, right? A lot of them were Buddhist schools too, right? There's a religious component as well. Um, and so um, uh, the political wind sort of turned against, was, was, you know, turning against the community, the rise of xenophobia and white supremacy. Um, and so they came after the Japanese language schools through both, you know, passing laws to limit them and then also trying to control the teachers um, that, that were in them. Professor Ao also explains how this exacerbated persecution also provided an opportunity to deepen the perversion of testing, a staple education practice, to marginalize English language learners and Japanese educators. The state of California cracked down on the Japanese language school teachers and started creating these exams to try and 
control who, who became teachers in the Japanese schools, Japanese language schools. Um, and they also passed the law to like try and stop the growth of Japanese language schools. But I'm not sure in terms of who was in, um, uh, the public school system, uh, in terms of, in terms of teachers. Um, one of the things that did happen though was that, you know, I do a lot of work on high stakes standardized tests and, and the racial politics of that and racial injustice surrounding it. Um, you know, there was actually a whole discussion in one of the towns that when one of the schools where there was, you know, a, it was a super high population of Japanese American students, um, who were actually performing very poorly on the English tests at the time. And folks were really upset about that. Um, and I, and I always raise that because, uh, it sort of pushes back against a lot of the model minority, a lot of minor, model minority stereotype we have around Asian Americans and, and testing success. Unfortunately, during this time, all non-white students and educators of color had to confront the barrier of weaponized testing that worked to affirm Western ways of thinking, learning, and communicating, while simultaneously denigrating the teaching and learning norms of others. Eugenicists, whose goal was to pursue the dominance of white power and supposed genetic purity, were powerful forerunners for this marginalizing form of testing. Eugenics champions like Carl Brigham, inventor of the SAT, and Henry Herbert Goddard, a pioneering educational psychologist, were tainting the science of teaching and learning with the pseudoscience of racial hierarchy. Throughout the first few decades of the 20th century, IQ testing was used as justification to sterilize quote-unquote undesirables and to racially discriminate for employment. These ideas and practices inevitably impacted who was educated, how they were educated, and terrifyingly contributed to the goal of population control. In fact, in the 1918 book Applied Eugenics by Paul Popino and Roswell Hill Johnson, they note, quote, Compulsory education, as such, is not only of service to eugenics through the selection it makes possible, but may serve in a more unsuspected way by cutting down the birth rate of inferior families. End quote. While different communities of color experienced similar persecution via testing, they also didn't hesitate to use the United States court system to resist these oppressions. The Common History Book notes the 1954 Brown v. Board Supreme Court decision as the landmark case that struck a major blow against school and nationwide segregation. However, there were several court cases in the preceding decades that empowered the breakthroughs and climate of Brown. These included Mendez v. Westminster in 1946 and Lum v. Rice in 1927. Unfortunately, however, this is where color and ethnicity hierarchy took precedence over intersectional resistance. Professor McDonald and Professor Al break down how Latinx and Asian community groups used disassociation from black identity to argue for their own educational rights. Mendez versus the Westminster uh, schools in California, and then of course Brown, and that was 1946, and then you have Brown v. Board in 1954. So the League of United Latin American Citizens, which is LULAC, which I call uh, the Brown NAACP, which was founded in 1909. And again, I often draw as an educator from Black history because as educators, we know we need to scaffold from prior knowledge, right? So, so you have most people had some sprinkling of uh, Black history in their public schools, but not necessarily even today. You know, Latinx history is not embedded in the standards and curriculum as thoroughly. So I like to draw from that. People are like, oh, okay, a brown, you know, for, for young students. Uh, I know NAACP. I don't know LULAC, but I'm learning it. So the LULAC strategy um, prior to the Chicano movement um, was one where um, they had a whiteness strategy. So by that, I mean, under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, at the conclusion of the Mexican-American War, um, the few Mexican-Americans who were in this area now called the United States, there's about 100, 150,000 or so, were told that they were also subject to the rules of um, citizenship and could be citizens. So as a result, there would be white at that time to be a citizen, if we remember from our Constitution. You have to be white. So from being racially considered white, 
which goes all the way down to today, as you know, with the census and the census category. Um, when you check, which is called Hispanic, by your government, that's an ethnicity, and then you put your race, um, which for most is white, but there, of course, are Afro-Latinos who are black. So at this time, though, they're like, our basis for saying there should not be Mexican segregated schools is that we are white and we belong in those white schools. Now, by saying that, however, um, they're really what Neil Foley calls, it's kind of a Faustian pact. There's two things going on. One, that means, and it was the case, they were not fighting for African-Americans in states like California and especially Texas that had tripartite systems. So there were the black schools that were by law, the white schools, and then these Mexican schools that were never by law, but de facto. So the strategy was not one covering and including African-Americans. They're sort of like, okay, we're white, sorry, bye. I'm putting that simplistically. But it's an honest reality that there was racism. We know in California, black and Latino students were put together sometimes. And that was a real fight sometimes. Sometimes there were alliances, but not as often in the South. So the key is that there was at the same time, Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP members knew that Mendez, because it was using violation of the 14th Amendment equal rights, could be very helpful for the overall strategy. And so they did file the friend, file the friend of the court brief for Mendez, which was ruled a victory. There's only a state level, California, that students should not be, uh, segregated Mexican students. Um, however, um, you, in Brown v. Board of Education, which of course was a national U.S. Supreme Court ruling, um, for African Americans, that would apply also for uh, Mexican-Americans also because it was based on segregation itself, not who was being segregated. Professor Al breaks down the outcomes of Lum versus Rice. And then, of course, 1924, Lum v. Rice, which was super important in terms of sort of establishing that, uh, that legally uh, the Chinese weren't, quote-unquote, Negroes, right? Um, but, uh, but they still weren't Caucasian or still weren't white. And so... Um, uh, they, they were sort of put in this other sort of category. It didn't quite fit. Cause you think about, you know, so much of U.S. law has been, hip has been wrapped around blackness and whiteness, right? These major rulings. And then so even legally, um, Asians and Asian Americans have at times fallen sort of between, uh, you know, between the categories and, and they've had to figure out where they fit in, um, um, you know, legally. Sadly, the ability to get access to white resources promoted some to buy into white supremacist rules and systems, demoting intersectional unity against the common oppressor. Nevertheless, the gears of desegregation were turning, leading into Brown versus Board. In addition to these court cases, there were other factors that were making Brown versus Board a possibility, and some of them weren't so selfless. Columbia professor and author of the book Learning in the Burning House, Educational Inequality, Ideology, and Disintegration, Sonia Douglas Horsford breaks down some of the history and undertold context of the Brown versus Board decision. It was, you know, a long-standing history and legacy of um, African Americans um, basically fighting for the right to attend the schools in their neighborhood and have access to the same educational opportunities um, that their white peers had. And so you see kind of, again, since even 1896 with the Roberts versus the city of Boston case, and many cases um, that took place over many, many years, um, which culminated in the Brown versus Board of Education decision, that it was really just just a right to have the same um, access to education and equal protection under the law. And so this question of equality in education, I would argue, focused on citizenship. It wasn't necessarily to get anything that others didn't have, that others had didn't have access to, but just ensuring that black students, by virtue of being black, were not denied access to, to education or opportunities to attend schools in their own neighborhoods. The theory of interest convergence um, developed by Derek Bell basically says that um, progress for blacks will only happen to the extent that it also benefits whites. 
Um, and so to the extent to which um, change or progress would undermine um, the privileges of those in power, it's not going to happen. And so school desegregation, for example, you saw the movement, you, you saw the school board, I mean, the, the Supreme Court, um, render a unanimous decision declaring that separate schools were inherently unequal. Um, but as Derek Dunn and other critical scholars would argue, it was really more of a message that was being sent um, internationally. As a result, a lot of the criticism that the United States was receiving by maintaining a separate system of schools for its black children. Um, I think the other part of the Brown decision that we don't talk about as much is that the schools were really just one mechanism to dismantle Jim Crow across the board. And it was very strategic in that um, it wasn't just about dismantling segregation within the school system, but within all parts of American society. And I felt that schools were one way um, of being able to do that. Now, my middle and high school teachers are big reasons why I'm a teacher. But I can't help but wonder why I wasn't given an opportunity to learn about this context as a young black student in the public education system, especially when we looked at the intricate causes and effects of so many other historical events. The deep resistance and deceptive acceptance involved in the development of this landmark case are all key truths to understand if we want to be honest about why we are where we are as a nation. Professor Emeritus and author of the book, The Lost Education of Horace Tate, Vanessa Siddle Walker, talks more about the silent role of resistance teachers played in the buildup of Brown versus Board. You have to understand the power that was created in the resilience of these black school communities. Because to fail to understand it, handicap how we make sense of the world today. Let me give you two examples. We elevate Martin Luther King, and well, we should. He gave his life for the cause, as did others. And I, I admire that greatly. But if we don't know our history, we don't understand that Martin Luther King and that type of leadership that we see in that generation that they are created beings. Let me explain. Lucy Lane, a black educator in Georgia, says in 1919, we're going to do something we know will be effective. Not that we haven't been working in the past, she says, right, referring to the Reconstruction generation. Not that we haven't been working in the past, but we're going to do something that we know will work. She said, we're going to teach these black children democracy, and the vote, we're going to teach them civics education. Now, she's talking about teaching them civics education at a time when she herself could not vote as a teacher. But they lay down this foundational strategy. We're going to teach black children civics. And you see across the South, the infiltration of the civics ideas into black schools. Out in New Orleans, uh, Valina C. Jones created the Valina C. Jones School Republic. And she turned her entire school into a republic. And the children have to have, they have responsibilities across all the areas that you see and in democracy, they're learning how a secretary of state performs, right? They're learning what democracy is supposed to be like. At a time, their educators can't do it. I mean, she even has the first and second grade can't participate in all this because they're the territories, right? I mean, she's so serious in the curriculum about what we're doing for these students. And it's not just the elementary school. We have good data on, on her work. But it's not just the elementary school. You see it in high schools. Booker T. Washington here in Atlanta is doing so much with teaching the children about elections and voting and democracy and involving the community that in 1937, the black newspaper, the Atlanta Daily World, writes, if this principal in this school keeps doing what it's doing, what's it doing? Right, teaching this civics education, he says another generation will not sit down 
they will stand up and demand their rights. Now, what's going on here? They're using civics education, something that is required by states to be taught, but they are appropriating it in ways to help black children understand what America owes them but is not giving them. As Ulysses Bias, principal up in Gaines, uh, Gainesville, Georgia, said, you have to know somebody did something to you. He said, now, in the beginning, you might feel ashamed. I write about this in Hello, Professor. He says, in the beginning, you might be a, feel ashamed to think that somebody did something to you and you don't know what it is they did. He said, but after a while, you said, well, wait a minute. What? what? Who did something to me and what did they do? He says, but you have to know somebody's doing something to you. That's the function that civic education is playing in black schools. They can run under the umbrella that we are teaching civics, a state-required course, but enforcing black children to learn the intricacies of democracy. They are teaching them that someone, America, did something, inequality, to them and give them the democratic tools and language to know how to challenge that. But we also have to understand the work of these black educators as collaborators, hidden agents in the push for Brown v. Board of Education. Because as long as we assume that brilliant attorneys work with courageous parents, to generate brand, we, we don't have a whole story. It's not that the attorneys weren't brilliant. I admired them I greatly. It's not that the parents weren't courageous. I admired them greatly. But until you understand that the black educational networks stood between the attorneys and the parents, to make the connections so that attorneys would know who would litigate, you know, who would be prepared to litigate. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Attorneys in New York do not know who in Georgia is prepared to bring forth a case. Who does know? The black educators. The NAACP wants the elaborate organization, nation, state, region, local, that can get information from the ground to the top about who will litigate. They, they wanted that from the days of James Weldon Johnson through Charles Houston. But in those early days, for a variety of reasons, it couldn't operate like that. So you don't have in the South the intricate kind of NAACP networks that we would want. But the teachers have it. They created networks across the South and within each individual state. You can get information from an executive director of the Teachers Association down into a region, from a region into a local school, in, from a local school out into a black parental community because they are networked. And what we see is under the table, the connection of, of the ideas for the push for equality that educators and lawyers share, you see the actual utilization of teachers' networks as a way to find the plaintiffs who can then be connected with the lawyers. You have to know that these educators are providing plaintiffs and money and time and vision and data to assist in covert ways in this operation. You have to know that. You have to delve beneath the public script. The public script was important at that time because the public script allowed the NAACP to have the national recognition for what it was doing to help black people. And and that's what 
we want it, and that's what we needed in real time. And black educators don't want to be seen because if they are seen for what they're doing, what they as individuals and their organizations are doing, they would lose jobs. So it is a perfect marriage in real time. Educators don't want the visibility, don't need it, will be punished if they get it. The NAACP wants to be the national voice. So you speak, we'll hide, let's get this done. And that's wonderful, as I said, for the moment. But if we don't, if this generation doesn't bring back into the national script an understanding of how it actually happened, then we handicap ourselves. It was clear that these black educators understood that teaching was activism and that their practice was to be leveraged for collective advancement, not a static or individualistic hoarding of status or information. This understanding empowered the talented lawyers from the NAACP, led by future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, to prove in the court of law that separate is inherently unequal. As Professor Horsford noted, the battles fought in segregated schools of color became the mega-weapon against the entire system of de jure segregation. What a legacy. <laughs> Do we embrace that legacy today? And an equally heavy question, how did those still attached to old racist norms respond to this resilience? Because remember, this decision largely happened because of its resilient and oppressed citizens and because of international shame, and not necessarily due to a change of heart. One thing I've learned as an educator is that changing your behavior to avoid shame instead of changing your behavior for true improvement puts an expiration date on that change, intentionally or unintentionally, and can and will cause backlash. Would there be an expiration date on this court decision? Would there be backlash? These experiences of oppression and resistance from educators of African-American, Latinx, and Asian-American descent further confirm a personal truth that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, we have to know three things. One, we have to know that we are part of an educational system that upholds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, we have to know that being in this system means that we are participants in it and are therefore accountable for our contributions. And most importantly, three, using our systemic awareness coupled with a strong knowledge of self, students, content, context, and instruction will not only allow us to be non-complicit participants in this system, but change agents from within it. As we go through this history, we will see that this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, but necessary. Thank you, and may our country do the necessary learning so we can have the necessary justice. For part five of this episode, we'll explore the undertold aftermath of the Brown versus Board decision and its impact on educators of color. In between now and the next episode, we invite you to open up your communities to discuss this history and its connections to our perceptions of education in America. How does this history make you rethink our current practices as educators? How does this history make you rethink your perceptions about the common traumas and serious tensions that can exist between different non-white ethnicities in this country? What would reclaiming the four L's, land, language, literature, and learning, look like in your school buildings and networks? What similarities does our current education system have with the ones described in this episode? How is it different? In this COVID virtual learning era, what does teacher anti-racist activism, resistance, and resilience look like? Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank Professors Victoria Maria McDonald, Wayne Au, Sonia Douglas Horsford, and Vanessa Siddle Walker for sharing their time, wisdom, and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically, intergenerationally, and communally. Until the next episode, I wish you all fair learning journeys. Peace and progress. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve educators and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. For more about our work, please visit unboundedead.org for resources such as our free, high-quality curriculum and the Bias Toolkit, a three-part guide for facilitating conversations about race, bias, and privilege among teachers and leaders. 
We also encourage you to go deeper into equitable instructional practices by attending one of our new interactive virtual summits. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topics we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. Latino education in the United States, a narrated history from 1513 to 2000 by Victoria Maria McDonald. Silent Covenants, Brown versus Board of Education and the Unfulfilled Hopes of Racial Reform by Derrick Bell. The Lost Education of Horace Tate by Vanessa Siddle Walker. Eugenics and Education in America, Institutionalized Racism and the Implications of History, Ideology, and Memory by Anne Winfield. Learning in the Burning House, Educational Inequality, Ideology, and Disintegration by Sonia Douglas Horsford. Reclaiming the Multicultural Roots of U.S. Curriculum by Wayne Al, Anthony Brown, and Dolores Calderon. We'll see you next time on the next episode of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning. Welcome, folks, to the B side of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, where we get up close and personal perspectives from educators of color regarding their experiences and their insights in the education field. And folks, we have a very special guest, Unbounded's own teacher prepping, researching, designing, the doctor, Gail <laughs> Perry Ryder. What's going on, Dr. G? Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for okay. having me. Thanks for being on. Um, so when you hopped on to Unbounded, we talked a lot about, me and you talked a lot about your previous experience, and I got to dive into your um, doctoral thesis around uh, teachers of color in education settings like why I had to nerd out about this before I talked about anything about the podcast. Why why focus on that? And can you talk about like all the peripheral pieces of being of color in this education system, including being in alternative education? So that's that's a that's a personal and professional sort of question right there. Um, so my interest in general is in is in teachers' minds. Mm. Um, and I should say not just teachers, but it's people who do important work to serve other people. I've always had a deep interest in anyone in the medical profession, in um, education, in social services, people who do important work in service to other people, but for whom those issues that they're trying to deal with not only impact the people, the populations that they work with, but themselves. So that was always an interest to me. What goes into the decision-making at work for people like that, people who work in complex systems with people who have lots going on, who themselves have to deal with a lot of those same barriers, institutional problems, um, oppressive experiences. So I was always interested in that. And I noticed a lot. Um, and I heard a lot of things in my own home about uh, things and experiences specific to Black people who did that kind of work. So I always had an interest because it seemed to me like there was something special about it if people were always talking about it in my environment. They were always talking about it. So my interest in teaching, well, I became a teacher, but I would say more because I, um, I found that I was just kind of seemed to be good at it, not because I understood the power of what it was, mm -hmm. because my own education experience was was pretty basic and I spent most of that time trying to stay invisible. But by the time I became a teacher, um, faced with what I saw as a really complex job that had very little to do with my preparation for it, I became really curious about those complexities, those things that happen in between the teaching, those discretionary spaces, but also and I'd say mostly the role of the institution itself, the school, on, on negatively and positively influencing everything we did, every decision that a teacher could make, every decision we didn't make, every pedagogical choice, um, every feeling that we had on a given day, every interaction seemed to be governed between a student and a teacher by what the, the, the environment was uh, dictating. So these things became so fascinating to me that I ultimately, after a, a, a lot of stuff I won't go into, uh, decided to pursue it formally and really go and study, study teachers. And I wanted to look at specifically teachers of color 
both because that had been my experience, but because I had a great interest from my work watching other veteran teachers of color when I was just a newbie and their navigational skills. Um, and as I learned about our history and, and why teachers of color tend to choose teaching, the reasons for entering the profession, um, the reasons for leaving the profession, um, their decision-making around pedagogy and their ways of using funds of knowledge, ways of relating to children, our positions about our philosophical positions on schooling, about community, and um, even, even something as broad as the purposes of education. When I started to learn more about that, all of that in it revealed traces, these legacies of our complicated history with education in this country. And the connections were so fascinating to me that I wanted to get further into um, the, the experience of modern day black teachers, particularly women, to understand if they were aware of the influence of these legacies on the work that they do right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was, I had to um, lead a conversation not that long ago at a, uh, at a charter school here in, in the Rochester area and in, in exploring what to talk about in the charter school, a conversation around the history and legacies of education as we're doing it in post Brown versus board, basically, like you talked about black women, right? And their experience. And it was, it was actually a, a, a woman's, young woman's charter school, right? And it was in thinking about this and thinking from my place of male privileges, also talking at this <laughs> women's college prep uh, a school, I realized that it's frequently been women of color who've been the vanguard of changing education in America, right? And it's interesting to hear you talk about like the prices that have had to be paid <laughs> because of that push, right? Even today, right? Like it, it's already taxing enough to be a teacher, right? Um, in a free society, right, if we can imagine one, um, in one where the systems work for the true advancement of the most marginalized, it would still be a hard thing to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But, however, it's not even that case, so it's double hard, and it has double attacks. Um, so, in societies where you may have had uh, women and men of color trying to, you know, teach of their own and then in this new kind of educational apartheid that takes place after brown versus board now you're ingrained in a system that has closer monitoring over you that has all these microaggressions that take place on a daily basis it's, it's very hard work so the very thing that you try to integrate through brown versus board which is about a young girl trying to get into you know uh topeka uh public schools in an integrated way Mendez versus Westminster was about a young Mexican girl and her family trying to get into a California public school, right? Um, in, in, in fighting these battles, right? Like there's a cost for uh, the, the educators um, who, who, who work in these integrated uh, spaces. Um, mm -hmm. Not to say that integration alone in itself is bad or good. And that's actually what the podcast talks a bit about. Um, in terms of this 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 integration right um we talk about in the podcast the concept of interest convergence where typically where in in our history class we learned that this hyper summarized like brown versus board happened the lawyers and naacp fought for it segregation was declared unlawful the end right <laughs> um okay. however what's not often talked about is a the, the, the teachers who played a vital role in providing the, the information to the lawyers for this landmark case, right? Talking about their purposes, right? Cause you talked about mm -hmm. what the reasons were for uh, uh, educators of color for joining uh, that profession. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't just to be in the classroom, it was for community advancement. So not only is that undertold, but then the idea of interest convergence where it wasn't like the United States was like, oh, this is dead wrong we're wrong, let's change it. It was like, oh, we look bad. <laughs> we look bad to the world. We're in the middle of this cold war. You know, Russia has all this dirt on us. We're talking about communism is bad, but here we are not allowing these folks to do whatever <laughs> in, in, in our own country. So now we're gonna, uh, you know, 
and so now we're just going to go ahead and, and, and say this is, you know, segregation is, is unlawful. Um, how you personally witnessed this, either in your research or your own personal walk, play out um, as an educator of color, this idea of um, interest convergence and, 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 and seeing folks do things because it's in their better interest, not necessarily for the best collective interests of our society. It's, it's interesting because you will hear, I have parents who um, grew up in um, segregated Midwest and South. And, you know, all my life, as I'm sure many people can identify with, you will hear these older Black Americans lamenting these times. And that's not the mirror image of what you learn about uh, segregation in school is that it was negative and that it was not to, it was not to anyone's advantage. Um, but they would be lamenting those times and some might wonder, you know, why would they speak so highly of a time when blatant state sanctioned inequity was uh, a way of life um, in terms of talking about our institutions. So um, I, I understand that now after having um, looked and watched and experienced the struggle that results from the negative parts of integration. So integration gave us access to resources that we previously didn't have, but what did we lose? And how much of that are we trying to get back every day uh, as teachers of color in these institutional environments? Well, that's what my research revealed to me. It put a name to these feelings and experiences that I had sort of wondered about for myself and then watched teachers, particularly black teachers, and, and most specifically women teachers struggle with trying to toe the line between how much they could bear from the pressure of an institution in order to protect the children that they wanted to serve, but still um, not be completely fragmented and destroyed and oppressed themselves. Um, so it's known in the literature that teachers of color, one of the, the things that they bring to the table are the, an, an affirming view of children of color. It's, they, they affirm, they believe in their abilities, they believe in their intellectual capacity, they see them as humans, they, they humanize them, they tend, to, um, they tend to have higher expectations, they, I'm sure you've heard the, the concept of warm demanders, they, they um, have a way of nurturing that is also firm and affirming. Um, but at the same, and, that, and that's something that's the literature across the board cites as something teachers of color repeat repeat about one of the, the things that they they are uh, bringing to the table that's valuable and it's not to say that white teachers can't be affirming but when you look at the reasons for for um why the, the white teachers go into teaching it's usually for uh different reasons that they report than those um so as i got a chance to really talk to these teachers and have them really pour out their experiences to me um it bore out that some of the distinctions between teachers of color and their white counterparts are that they they are acutely aware that children are consistently and continuously being devalued that this isn't actually the problem of the past that it's a continuing dehumanization that schools are and can be completely dehumanizing completely oppressive um and that that erodes the experiences of children in school, as well as their self-concept, let alone their intellectual development, let alone. Um, these teachers, they tend to see that the work on lifting those children back up is work that runs parallel to teaching academic subjects. It's just an understanding that very few of them, if any, reported learning from their teacher preparation program. In fact, what teachers of color have in common is this extremely taken for granted but real use of their funds of knowledge, which is what I would also call their informal education that they bring to bear on their teaching, again, having nothing to do with their formal preparation in most instances. It came from a, a combination of family learning, community learning, even previous job experiences where they had, again, experience firsthand what institutional oppression can look like and they had an acceptance and realization that racism and oppression are real which it may be hard to believe but that's another distinction between teachers of color and some of their white counterparts is just the just the awareness that 
racism is real, that it does occur in schools, and that it's embedded throughout the systems. Um, so in a sense, many teachers of color, they are working every day to restore what was taken for granted in these segregated contexts, where children were safe, they were regarded, their intellectual development was safe and regarded, their physical safety was ensured, they were loved. And in many respects, the teachers would see them as themselves or see them as potentially like their own children. And that's, that was an important distinction. So with that comes this heavy responsibility to, to be an act as a buffer between the children and the harms of the institution, which we can see today in the ridiculously um, lopsided rates of school discipline um, and um, sort of unfettered filtering of children of color into special education. These are the kinds of systems that these teachers were acutely aware of having consequences beyond just a classroom or a slip of paper. They understood what it would mean to start a child on a trajectory down the school to prison pipeline just by a referral. Things that their white counterparts weren't just weren't as aware of. So this acute awareness of what I started to call just power, just, just that the presence of power in the building and that they were normalized. Um, and then it's a commitment that teachers of color have to attending to students' lives, um, attending to students' whole lives, um, a commitment to standing in the gap um, to interrupt these institutional norms that they would see harming children that others in the building may just not accept. But in the process, there was a lot of struggle and suffering for those teachers because all of what I just described to you that's happening in the process of schooling for students is simultaneously happening for these teachers of color, which explains their um, low retention rate. So we're talking about um, feeling fragmented by having to play so many different roles in the building, um, having internalized that oppression themselves, um, having to witness violence against these children and not being able to do anything about it, not being listened to themselves, feeling inadequate about what's possible, and feeling invisible that their expertise is ignored, their cultural funds of knowledge aren't seen as important or valuable, evaluatable. And so teachers of color leave. The buffer between the harmful system and unsuspecting children, I, that, that visual is really sticking with me because it really does illustrate like because if you're guarding somebody from something and you're exposed to those elements that you're guarding those folks from it's going to cause harm and i would even submit that you may not be 100 percent blocking every single time right because if you're so busy trying to block it and it's so taxing on you there may be times where you are shifting as that buffer and some things get passed or you know, like it impacts you in a way where you try to not, you know, emulate what <laughs> you're being a buffer for, but you incidentally end up emulating what that buffer is about. And then it sounds like, according to your research, some of us who've had been in that situation can't handle that, don't want to handle that, aren't designed to handle that. Nobody should be and nobody is. Um, and so they're like, you know what, this is a lot for me. I'm seeing that I'm taking a tax that is also still allowing me to not do do the things that I don't want done <laughs> and I try to mm -hmm. fight. So I'm exhausted, I gotta tap out. But if you don't have that orientation, then you're just doing your job in, mm -hmm. in your mind, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the podcast, we talk a bit about, you know, what that kind of experience, we talk about what's happened in history, right? But then how that history set the ground for some of the experiences we're talking about now um, and how there's been similarities and differences between like what that's looked like for Native Americans, what's that, what's that look like for uh, African-Americans, what that's looked like for Latinx folks. And there's a lot of commonalities, right? But there's also like key differences because there are, you know, different ethnicities, uh, even within those big groups that I just mentioned, right, in terms of uh, what teaching and learning has looked like um, and how their teaching and learning has been oppressed uh, through, you know, American education systems. But there's also been similarities and differences about how they fought against it using courts. 
And one of the unfortunate things that some of the professors talk about in our podcast is um, this reality of where other ethnicity, other non-white ethnicities that were also non-black often used, fought for their rights at the expense of disassociating themselves from black people, right? Um, and th that's like an unfortunate thing that took place and, and still can take place to this day, uh, right? Um, in education and well outside of education, even though there, there's common oppression taking place, right? But last question, um, mm -hmm. we always ask this last question on the B side. Who was your favorite educator in person? And then somebody who you like have read about but haven't had personal interactions with? Okay. Well, that's a lot of people. So that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I know I'm stumped on this one. I'm going to go with James Baldwin because one of the writings that he has was pretty life-altering for me. Um, and that was a talk to teachers where he basically penned an open letter. Even thinking about it, it hurts because he penned an open letter to, to whomever would listen, but it was really for teachers to, to think for a second about the soul-killing nature of their hatred what he called hatred, which people wouldn't want to call it today. They probably just want to call it bias. But he was talking about hate that bias feels like when you're in the body of a, of a little, little child, little black child, that you come in innocent. And he asked the question somewhere in there, what happens when he realizes that he'd hate and it just breaks me to think about that because I have a son and I have a daughter and my frenziedness around them as a parent has become a desperate flailing attempt to stop him from and her from realizing that they may be hated as for as long as I can. That is different from doing research about it. That's, that's the impact, the reverberating impact of racism on me via my children. So it continues, it reverberates through all of us and it kills, it kills our soul, but it, it kills sometimes our hope and optimism. And I'm doing everything I can you know, to make sure that theirs is protected for as long as I can because I have seen and know it to be true that that is what awaits him and, and her in many instances with um, what they'll experience in school. And I fear schools because of that. I have, I have fear of them. Um, the educator that had the most influence on me, to be quite honest with you, um, it, are, are my parents particularly my mother, who had a, had a way of making me understand through my own schooling and my siblings that whatever we experienced, we should see it as a function of racism and not our shortcomings. I do not know how she did it, but I think that she succeeded in that she was able to stave off much of the damage that I might have experienced in by way of thinking that I somehow was to blame for what I saw happening to children around me and to me at, at the hands of adults who indeed did not love us. And that for me is a is really the driving factor for everything that I do at this point is to try to stop that process as early as I can in whatever way I can with whomever I need to work with because it is much harder to stop the process um, or deal with it when the person's an adult than to try to have a child understand why they are hated for being themselves. 
Well, Dr. G, thank you so much for your openness and your insight and your wisdom and your fight. Um, because, you know, we're on this side of the fight, but we're still in this fight. Um, it takes guts, it takes perseverance, and, and you're doing it, and we're grateful for it. Um, so thank you very much. And uh, thank you to all of our other guests who have been on the last episode of the Complexion of Teaching and Learning, um, episodes one through four, and to remind everyone that justice is found in the details of teaching and learning. Do not forget. Peace.